Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. And today on the show, we have a very special guest who's on campus this week for commencement. Many of you have heard of Dr. Andrew Brunson, a longtime missionary to Turkey with his wife, Noreen. He was imprisoned there for two years on false charges and released after a global concert of prayer on his behalf a concert that included my old church in the suburbs of Chicago, I might add. We've invited him to speak to our students tomorrow at commencement. And since this episode is airing several weeks after the fact, you can head straight from here to our YouTube channel if you'd like and hear Dr. Brunson's commencement address in its entirety. Kristen, will you please introduce Dr. Brunson and get our conversation started? Hello, everyone. We have on the show Dr. Andrew Brunson. He is the co-founder of Wave Starters, a nonprofit ministry he began with his wife, Noreen. He is also the author of a book called God's Hostage, a true story of persecution, imprisonment, and perseverance. Welcome, Dr. Brunson, to the Beeson Podcast. Uh, Thank you. But first, please call me Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll call you Andrew from here on out. Well, most people know about you, Andrew, from your imprisonment, um, especially when it made headlines here in the U.S., but many of our listeners may not know your story before that. And so we'd love for you to take us back kind of to the beginning before you were a pastor in Turkey, and we'd love to hear about your spiritual journey. How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? And what led you to want to uh, serve overseas in missions? Yeah, my parents were missionaries to Mexico. So I was uh, raised in a, in a home that from the, my earliest time, obviously, I was hearing about Jesus. And I saw the example of my parents. And uh, in my home, uh, they read the Bible three times a day. So in, in the morning... Uh, they would read the New Testament for about half an hour. In the afternoon, they would read the New Testament half an hour. And then at night, Psalms and Proverbs. So there was a lot of Bible reading in our home, an hour, hour and a half a day. And I grew up in that environment. And I did profess faith at a very young age. It didn't really go very deep in me. It was in my senior year of high school that I really made a commitment to the Lord. And, and my life turned around dramatically. Just in a five-minute period, a a teacher prayed for me. I told him, I've tried so many times to follow Jesus. I just can't do it. I'm up and down. And uh, he said, uh, uh, he he prayed for me, and and something happened. And uh, he asked for for God to send his Holy Spirit and just just transform me uh, in a new way. And that did happen. Uh, I remember I walked onto a soccer game. I was going to, uh, I was at a boarding school in the States. And a friend of mine looked at me and said, Andrew, something's happened. I went, before, when I looked in your eyes, I was afraid. And, and But something's happened to you. You look different. So it was a, a pretty uh, radical transformation. As for missions, uh, when Hudson Taylor, the way my, uh, I, I've heard the story, when Hudson Taylor was an, an old, old man with a gray beard, a, a woman took her two young sons to him and said, I want you to lay hands on them and set them aside for missions. And uh, he did that. And both of the boys grew up to become missionaries. Uh, And one of them, uh, Stanley Solto, when he was a 
an older man uh, right before he died, actually. My mother took me and my younger sister to him and said, what Hudson Taylor did for you, I want you to do for my children. And so he laid hands on us and uh, set us aside for missionary work. And uh, I remember the days, one of my earliest memories, I think I was only three years old, but uh, I was acting up and so I got a spanking right after he prayed for us. And it just engraved it in my mind. Uh, I never forgot it. So I still have that that uh, image uh, kind of shadowy now of, of him praying for us. But something happened. I think God honored what I would call a, an impartation that came from Hudson Taylor to, to Stanley Solto and then to me and to my sister that God honored those prayers. And from that time, I had a strong sense that I was to be a missionary. I'm the oldest of seven children. Uh, my mother wanted all of us to become missionaries. The others did not. So it wasn't just growing up in that environment. When I was not walking with the Lord in my teen years, if someone were to ask me, what are you going to do when you grow up? I'd say, if I survive this period of my life, I know that I'm supposed to be a missionary. So there's something that God put very deep in my heart. And uh, when I met Noreen at Wheaton College, started dating, she knew that if she married me, missions was part of the package. I was just very committed to that. Andrew, I'm told that when you were a student at Wheaton many years ago now, uh, you became a friend of Lyle Dorset, who, of course, is a very important person at Beeson Divinity School. I'm also told that before my time here at Beeson, Lyle and Mary Dorset played a key role in keeping the Beeson community abreast of your imprisonment in Turkey. So I thought I'd take an opportunity to ask you about your relationship with the Dorsets. Uh, what role have they played in your life, uh, and how have they encouraged you in your ministry and in your missionary efforts? So Mary was working at uh, Special Collections on the library at Wheaton, and I was working there as a student part-time. And I went in and complained to her how there was just no one who was really uh, passionate for God at Wheaton College. Of course, I was the problem, not not the college. But she said, you know, my husband is. And uh, and so she sent me over to meet him. He was in charge of the Wade Center at the time, which uh, is famous for housing uh, papers of C.S. Lewis. So I went over and met him, and uh, I invited myself over to their house to eat. I didn't know that that was inappropriate. You know, I was an MK from Mexico, and I, I said, I'd like to come over to your house and eat with you. And, and he very graciously accepted, and uh, I got to know him, and that became a weekly thing. Mary fed me uh, once a week. And uh, Lyle became my mentor. Uh, Noreen lived in their home for a time before we got married, and Lyle performed our wedding ceremony. Our, our oldest son is named Jordan Dorset, uh, so his middle name comes from Lyle. So I, I have a great dad, but Lyle became like a second father to me, uh, a spiritual father. Through his influence, I, I went on to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He was an admirer and friend of Robert Coleman. And I always heard about Coleman, and so uh, I decided to go study. I went from Lyle to Coleman uh, through Lyle's influence. And Lyle's the one who told me, he said, uh, he said, Drew, you're an evangelist. And so I thought, well, I must be an evangelist because Lyle Dorset is saying this, Drew, you're a preacher. And so I started preaching, and I did many things. Uh, he motivated me just by his uh, encouragement and, and belief in me. Uh, he told me recently uh, Lyle did that. He has missed praying for me only one time uh, since those days. So let's call it 35 years. Mm. In 35 years, he's missed praying for me one day, and that's when he was in surgery. 
So <laughs> very deep commitment on his part. And, you know, I only took one class from Lyle uh, at Wheaton. He did not do a Bible study with me. He, we had no kind of program that we followed. I just absorbed from being around him. And he gave me that opportunity just to spend time with him. I remember running into Dr. Dorset before he retired in the mailroom when you were imprisoned and he was giving me an update and we prayed for you then. Um, you were always on his mind and heart and um, that's a special relationship for, for both of you. And so we're glad to have you at Beeson um, especially. Well, getting to the story of your imprisonment, can you tell us what led you to Turkey in the first place? And what did your ministry look like over the span of more than 20 years prior to your arrest? So tell us about your your journey to Turkey and your ministry there. Well, first, Turkey uh, was a good place for us to go. We, uh, My wife and I both felt that the Lord was leading us to the Muslim world, and Turkey is the largest unevangelized country in the world. Uh, most Turks have never met a Christian. They don't have any Christians around. And... Most cities don't have a church, they don't have a missionary, they don't have any pastors. So uh, it, it was a good place for us to go, but actually we didn't want to go there. <laughs> uh, we were wanting to go to Egypt. Uh, our church at the time, our denomination that we were with then, uh, wanted to send a team to Turkey, and they asked us to go. And we went there in obedience, not having any desire to be in Turkey. We actually felt negatively about going there. When we got on the plane, uh, Noreen was crying, you know, oh, no, my life is over. I'm going to Turkey. But over the first few years, the way we, we think of it is that God put some of his love for, for Turkey into our hearts. It wasn't some idealized, romanticized view of Turkey and the food and the culture and all that, although we, we really came to enjoy those things. But more that... Uh, a love that expresses itself in a commitment to see God's blessing come to that place. And that took us through a number of hardships over the years, since it wasn't just a, a feeling we had for the country. There was a deep commitment that God put in our hearts. As for our ministry, we spent early on learning the language, spent some time in a Turkish university, uh, things like that. But at some point, we started a, a church plant. And I discovered that I thought I wanted to to teach in a seminary. That's what I had prepared for. And I'd, I'd gone on to do uh, doctoral work for that. Uh, and then I was kind of thrust into a church planning situation. And I discovered that that this has really animated me and, and uh, that this is what God had for me. Uh, we're not natural church planners. We're both introverts and we're in Turkey, which is a very social culture. So we really don't fit. And, and, but but somehow God used us in that. So we were involved in several church plants over the years with the various teams uh, that we led, and uh, then uh, a house of prayer. It seems that that's something God is doing now. It's, I would say in the last 20 years especially that there's a movement of intercessors coming together, setting up houses of prayer that I think prepare the way for then the work of evangelism and church planting, but that kind of softens, uh, opens the way up. And then when there was a, the civil war in Syria started to heat up, many refugees poured into Turkey. And uh, Syria is was kind of an unreachable place in many ways. Now they were coming into Turkey, and we had a chance 
to meet some of their physical needs with humanitarian aid, but especially to tell them about Jesus uh, in a time when they had lost everything and were very vulnerable and were starting to ask questions that they've never asked before. So that's the kind of work that we did. I'm not really a pastor. Uh, I think people call me Pastor Brunson because of uh, uh, that's how I was presented in media. And I, I have done pastoral work out of necessity. I always said I felt bad for the sheep that I was taking care of. <laughs> the Lord used us more to, to start ministries. Uh, as I said, several church plants over the years with various teams. And I do want to emphasize everything we did in Turkey was small and fragile. Uh, that is what you expect in the largest unevangelized country. You asked about uh, the uh, the last church that we started. Uh, it became the most uh, infamous church in Turkey because I was accused of many things and uh, being a spy, a terrorist, trying to pl- start a, carry out a coup against the government, all kinds of things. And and uh, the media often came to this little uh, yellow church uh, in Izmir, ancient Smyrna, and it became known around Turkey. That was the last uh, church that we were involved in. And they remain faithful under a lot of pressure, and we're very proud of them. Andrew, help our listeners understand uh, how in the world a man like you doing such wonderful ministry in Turkey could have been arrested on charges like that. What was going on in Turkey then? And what was it about your ministry that the authorities found so threatening? Yeah, so Noreen and I had been there 23 years already, and we had a, a public ministry. We didn't do anything in secret. Uh, we weren't doing anything illegal. So the government was very aware of our work because it's a police state, Turkey is, and they follow us and they sent people into our church to infiltrate it and uh, secret police and all that. That didn't really bother us because we, we said, come and see what we're doing. You know, we, we're not hiding anything. So they knew very well that I had not done the things that they accused me of doing. It wasn't a mistake that some people, you know, some local judge or local police uh, made a mistake in arresting me. Uh, it was intentional. And I think what they were doing was, well, th- we were called into a, a local police station. We thought we were going to get our long-term residence papers so that we could remain there for the rest of our lives, basically, is what we expected. And then we were told when we at the police station that they had an order to deport us from Turkey and that they were going to arrest us while that process uh, uh, started. And usually that should take just one day to deport an American. But they held us for 13 days together. Noreen and I were in a detention center. Then they released her and then they kept me for another two years. I think what happened is that they there had been a coup attempt that summer. And uh, this provided an opportunity for the president of Turkey to round up all people who uh, he didn't like or who opposed him and put them in prison. In the midst of that, he, I think some people decided, let's get rid of uh, some of the missionaries because uh, the government of Turkey uh, is very anti-Christian. And so uh, they chose me because they had to choose someone to make an example of. And I, I think that actually God intended for them to to uh, to choose me. He, he had prepared me in some ways for this. I see it as an assignment from him. And I think they, they intended to deport us, and then somebody decided to keep us and see what would happen. And I think they wanted to intimidate other missionaries and have them self-deport, because up until that time, no one had been imprisoned for their faith in living memory, certainly not any missionaries. And so this was something new that people had to then uh, factor into 
counting the cost of being there. And some people did leave because, you know, they weren't ready to, to stay with that risk. Uh, and they also wanted to intimidate Turkish pastors and Turkish believers. You know, the idea is if, if we can do this to an American, we can do this to anybody. Now, I know that this happens in many parts of the world where, where they persecute Christians, but uh, Turkey uh, is a NATO ally. So the idea that they would do this to, to an American was something new. <laughs> People had not anticipated this. So it was really a, a message to believers in Turkey. We can do what we want to when we want to, uh, intended to intimidate them. And then in time, they began to use me as leverage to gain concessions from the U.S. government. So I, I think of that as a human story, all the intrigue involved, the things they accused me of. They didn't really accuse me of anything for a while. Then they said, well, human trafficking, uh, <laughs> because we worked with refugees, and then uh, accused me of helping to being part of an Islamist group that they said was behind the attempted coup. Then they said I was uh, working with Kurdish terrorists and had been fighting in Syria and was a CIA agent. And well, actually, the head of the CIA for the Middle East, that if I'd been successful in the coup attempt, I was going to become the head of the entire CIA. Just a lot of crazy things like this. And what they were doing really was, it was a government-led propaganda campaign that gave free reign to the media, which is very closely connected to the government, to say whatever they wanted to about Christians, to put out all the, there's already a lot of animus toward Christians in Turkey as it is, but this just gave them an opportunity to, to pour it all out. And uh, I was the example they gave of, of a traitor, someone who hates Turkey because he's a Christian, uh, someone who's a terrorist and a spy. But they were painting me with that brush, but really they were using me to paint the entire church in Turkey and prepare the way so that when there's more intense persecution in the future, most Turks are going to say, well, those Christians deserve it. So that, that is what was going on in, in the human side of the story. I also see a God story in this, which is underlies it. You know, all of the intrigue, the sanctions that came, the accusations, the trial, what the Turkish government was really intending to do. And then underlying it is, is God's story that is more fundamental and a little more difficult to discern, but more real in a sense. And I think that God was using my imprisonment for his purposes. He didn't put me in prison. I think that was a satanic attack, but he... He was certainly involved, and he was using it for his purposes. And one of the big one was to raise up a worldwide prayer movement. I think the former dean at Beeson, Timothy George, told me that it was an unprecedented prayer movement focused on one person uh, in living memory. So, yes, Noreen asked for people to pray, and then it, the people she told asked their friends. But but it spread far beyond that. This was clearly God-initiated, God-sustained, God-driven it was a supernatural prayer movement that actually went around the world to millions and millions of people and uh, to many countries. And the purpose, I became a lightning rod. You know, I was drawing in this prayer. People were praying for me, but God was intending it to spill out into Turkey and the region around it to prepare for a harvest that's going to come uh, in our lifetime. Andrew, can you describe for us what your imprisonment was like those two years, both physically and um, spiritually? And I, you know, thinking about uh, what you went through, I just wonder if you ever doubted God's love or goodness um, in the midst of that imprisonment. And if so, what got you through such a difficult and painful time of your life? 
So the imprisonment was terrible. <laughs> it was awful. And I came very close to failure. The first year especially was a year, I describe it as a year of breaking. The second year, I went through a rebuilding process. But the first year, I mean, the, both years were very, very difficult for me. If someone had told me before I went to prison that I would be going to prison, and, and let me say here, I, I spent two years in Turkish prisons, but I didn't know it was going to be two years. Uh, they wanted three life sentences for me in solitary confinement with no possibility of parole. So there was a lot of uncertainty. And that's uh, the weight that I was uh, living under, not knowing when, if I would get out. And I actually did not know that I was going to be released until the very day that I was released. Uh, I just lived with uncertainty those two years. So if someone had told me before I went to prison that I was going to spend some time in Turkish prisons, I would have, I'm pretty sure I would have thought about it in an idealistic way because of the biographies that I've read, because of my own expectations uh, from my relationship with God. I would have thought that I'd have a lot of strength, that it would be difficult and uh, lonely, and I'd have some grief, but I'd still have a sense of joy and a sense of grace, and especially that I'd have a sense of God's presence because I had pursued God's presence for years, uh, intimacy with him, especially focusing on on presence. And all of that was cut off from me uh, early on in my imprisonment. Every way that I had related to God and uh, sensed him, felt him, uh, interacted with him uh, was just cut off. And I think of those two years as the silence of God, experiencing the silence of God, a sense of abandonment. And uh, I know people are very sensitive about this, so I have to underline that objectively, God did not abandon me, but he certainly let me feel that way. And Jesus felt that way for a short time on the, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, I felt it for a, a much longer period of time. And this, uh, the expectations that I had were not met. And this led to a wounding of the heart and disillusionment, disappointment with God, and uh, deep offense toward him. And this, you know, I'm thinking, I, I understand the idea of suffering persecution. I don't like it, but I understood intellectually what was happening to me. What I could not understand is, God, where are you in the midst of it? I'm suffering for you, after all. What? Why have you left me in this way with no sense of your presence? Uh, and, and a grace, I, as I look back, I can say, I, I can see that I had grace. Uh, the grace brought me through, but, but it was an unfelt grace for the most part. It was much more difficult than I would have uh, anticipated. Uh, so as a result of the unmet expectations, the disappointment, the wounding of the heart, early on I began to question his existence the existence of God, which is a shocking thing considering that I had been in ministry for many years. And then I kind of thought, eventually I concluded that God must exist because otherwise I wouldn't be persecuted the way I was. <laughs> I started a discipline where I, a number of times a day, early on when I was really starting to have these doubts, I would declare certain truths and the first truth I would declare is, God, you exist, and you are involved in my life. And I would go back and look at my history and, and think, 
surely God, you were involved at this point. And I, I, I believe that you were involved at that point. And just looking at the things that before I would have very easily said, yes, you did that. Now, now really questioning and, and trying to find the evidence of God's hand in my life over the years and concentrating on that to strengthen myself and believing that, yes, God did actually exist and was involved in my life. Uh, I kind of dealt with that, and then I moved on to accusation. Uh, I really questioned whether God loved me personally. I know he loves the whole world, but do you love Andrew Brunson? If so, where is your hand? Where is the kind and gentle father that I had been teaching about, who I had been teaching about for years. I don't see your kindness and gentleness. And I want to emphasize that God is kind and gentle. He is also other things. And often we just, God's faithfulness may look different from what we expect. It doesn't mean he's not faithful. It means it may look different from what we expect. Uh, I think of Paul, one of my favorite verses while I was in prison uh, at the end of Second Timothy. So Paul is sitting in a Roman dungeon and he's expecting to be executed. And he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So safely and rescue look different to Paul than we would normally think about those words. He's, he's miserable and expecting to have his head cut off. But he says confidently, Jesus is rescuing me and he's going to bring me safely into his kingdom. So, so safety and rescue can look different. Faithfulness and love, they're there, but they can look different than we would expect. I just want to underline that because I don't want to undermine, I don't want to say anything negative about God. I love him very much. So I had questioned his love, his faithfulness, his truth, and his goodness. And so I questioned his existence, then I questioned his character, and this ended up suffocating my relationship with him. And I came very close to failure in my time in prison. And there was a turnaround, a turning time that came just as God made me aware. Uh, there was a, a picture in my mind of the valley of testing being filled with the bones and skeletons of believers who had failed in their tests, not talking about whether they go to heaven or not, but about losing their friendship with God. And uh, God drove that into my heart as a grace, and I became aware I was very close to that point myself. And so I began to fight for my relationship with him. And the turning uh, time was making that decision with my will, not with my emotions, which were completely in turmoil to say, no matter what you do or don't do, whether you give me grace or not, whether you give me presence or not, your voice or not, deliver me or not, I will follow you. And I'm going to devote myself and, and, and fight for this relationship. And after that, what it did was it positioned me so that I could begin to receive uh, grace and cooperate with grace. But it was still very difficult. God did not give me a sense of presence after that or, or, uh, or a real sense of grace. But there was a rebuilding process that started so that there was a lot of healing that took place. And a lot of uh, I came out stronger than I went in. A lot of our listeners will be wondering what all this was like for your wife, Noreen. What was her role in your ministry in Turkey? And then what was her role during your imprisonment? What was she doing during this time? So during our ministry, Noreen and I are exceptionally close uh, as a couple. And all of our ministry we did together. So I was I was leading the work, but pretty much we talked about everything. She was involved in every aspect of the ministry. And 
when I was put in prison and she was released, then she uh, was really heading up the family of ministries that we that we had started. Uh, so we were very much a team. During my imprisonment, uh, especially because one reason why my imprisonment was so difficult is that I am so close to my wife. And uh, I, I had a, such grief, such a sense of loss being cut off from her and, and also from my children. But something that she did. So she was released after two weeks. And people we really respect, leaders, Christian leaders, said to her, Noreen, you need to come back to the States. Let God take care of Andrew. You, you need to take care of yourself. And she said, I will go back to the States if God shows me clearly, but it has to be such a level of clarity like an angel comes to tell me. Otherwise, I'm, I'm, I'm staying here with my husband. And she placed herself uh, at risk. Uh, there was some risk to her, uh, but she knew she, I was in a desperate situation, how broken I was. And she was the only person who could uh, visit me in prison. And so she became my lifeline. Uh, she would come in and try to encourage me so that I would get to the next, through the next week. I, I was suicidal a number of times, and she had to come in and, and try to uh, speak truth to me and get me focused on God in, in, a, in a positive way. And I, I don't know that I would have made it through without her doing that. I do want to say, pick, give you a picture of her because um, she was a lioness. Uh, she really fought for me. But she, when they put me into a high security prison, so Noreen's coming, trying to get in. Eventually, they let her see me after after several weeks, uh, have a visit. And uh, when she would come to this prison, it's high security prison, so you have uh, these high walls. It's intimidating, razor wire guards with uh, submachine guns. For her to get in, she has to go through several security checks. They scan her iris at least two different places. Uh, just a very intimidating setup. And on top of that, she's coming to, uh, it's the shame they put on her because she's coming to uh, visit a no notorious uh, spy and terrorist, which is me. And that's what everyone is thinking about me now because of, of the media. Uh, so it's an intimidating thing. But she began to approach it in this way. She'd come draw close to the prison and she would uh, say, I'm a daughter of the king and I'm here to see a son of the king. And then she would literally put her head up high and walk in. And uh, this, is, this was a picture I carried with me of her, uh, just the, the mentality that she came in with uh, and the, the courage that she was showing. When you were imprisoned, you wrote a song called Worthy, Worthy of My All. Can you tell us about that song? What led you to write it, and what is the song about? Uh, I had been called into a uh, court session where I was uh, basically told that they wanted three life sentences for me. Those were the charges against me. And that really knocked me out. It felt like a death sentence. And uh, I really grieved after that. A couple of weeks after I received that news, I was singing actually to God my grief, my pain, uh, my tears. And then what came from my mouth, just as, as I'm singing this out to him, was, uh, you're worthy. Uh, you're worthy of my tears and my pain. Whatever I may suffer for you, you are worthy of this. And uh, it just became a heart song. I was just singing uh, my, my heart out to him. 
And uh, I wrote it down and I sang it every day for the rest of my imprisonment. It was, I still had a year to go, more than a year to go. And uh, part of it was a love song to Jesus. Part of it was also declaring, you know, I, I mentioned to you that I had questioned his faithfulness, love, goodness, truth. And I determined that I was going to declare the truth about God, the truth about Jesus, whether I felt it or not, whether I saw it or understood it or not. And so that's one of the things I sang is, Jesus, the faithful one who loves me, always good and true, you made me yours and you're worthy of my all. And uh, just declaring who he is, that he's good, faithful, true, loving. Uh, A key for me in that song was... uh, one of the verses says, I want to be found worthy to stand before you on that day with no regrets from cowardice, things left undone. This came from from thinking of imagining, visualizing, standing before Jesus at the end of my life and and having him say to me, Andrew, and I, I, I had an inheritance for you to win in this world and you you lost it you because you ran away. Or I and, and I really thought of him saying you were a coward. I had assignments for you and they were not, they were left undone because you were a coward. And this goes back to several months before I had been at such a terrible point, such a a dark time in my, in my imprisonment that I had told him, I said, I renounce whatever assignments you have for me. I've served you here 23 years. I give up whatever inheritance comes from this. And I don't want any more assignments from you. If you intend to use my imprisonment, uh, you want me to to use this in some way, I don't want it. I just release me. Let me go back to my family. I cannot handle this. You chose the wrong man for this. So so that had been a, a terrible thing after years of serving him to just kind of renounce serving him. And here I was several months later in a completely different frame of mind in a worse situation because now I know that they want three life prison sentences. And I'm saying, I repent from this. No, I I want every single assignment you have for me to be accomplished. I don't want to miss out on a single one. And I'm living. I want to focus myself on the day that I stand before you and live for that day, that every assignment you have for me will be fulfilled. And I, I will not stand before you with regret. And again, I want to emphasize this wasn't an emotional thing. This was just a a commitment of the will and focusing myself on what really matters on on eternity. And I sang this every day. And as I did this and focused on living for that day, it began to build. Every time I did that, it was flexing a surrender muscle and a perseverance muscle. And over time, it built to strengthen me and a determination uh, that had not been there before. We believe deeply in the power of prayer, Andrew, and we know you do too. Uh, We believe that the prayers of God's people led to your release from prison. But from just a human, worldly perspective, what happened? Uh, Why, after two years, uh, did they finally let you go? Well, the human story is that the U.S. government put a lot of pressure on Turkey, but they'd been doing that for a long time. President Trump had a summit with the president of Turkey, President Erdogan, at about the eight-month mark of my imprisonment, and he asked him three times in that summit directly to release me. 
Erdogan kept me for another 17 months. So, you know, clearly that didn't work. And that was actually very discouraging for me because I thought this has gone as high as it can go. Before I said, you know, if, if the presidents end up talking about me, that would be a miracle. And then, well, they talked about me, but nothing happened. <laughs> and so uh, I was very despondent. And the U.S. increased pressure. It continued for, for a long time. Uh, but the Turks uh, were were very obstinate and determined to keep me, and 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 I think part of that is it was God's plan. That uh, I think of it as a Pharaoh type situation, and you see Pharaoh uh, is famous for hardening his heart. About half the time, it says God hardened his heart, and so I think that the president of Turkey, a number of times, you know, he 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 was the one making the decisions about me from at least the second month on. Uh, so we knew that nothing was going to happen until he decided to let me go. Uh, they put me on trial, but it wasn't a real trial. It was a real trial, but it was a kangaroo court. Uh, and he was the one ultimately who would make the decision. So it was not clear that he would let me go. And then part of the time, I think God encouraged that hardening because he had not yet completed what he intended to with my imprisonment. Uh, in any case, at some point, uh, President Trump imposed uh, sanctions. There were actually tariffs. He increased the tariffs on steel and aluminum. And uh, this isn't a big deal. It was a big deal because nothing like that had ever been done to a NATO ally before. But as far as a real world consequences, you know, it shouldn't have been that big a thing. But all the foreign investors saw this, uh, the uh, intransigence on the Turkish side and thought, you know, they're getting into a, a fight with the world's largest economy, and they just withdrew en masse. And so the Turkish stock market dropped $40 billion just overnight, just very quickly. And the Turkish currency collapsed. So their debt, their corporate debt is primarily done in, in foreign currency in euros or dollars. So now their cost of borrowing or to repay their loans, rather, across the, the whole economy has just almost doubled. So this was, the, the whole economy was on the verge of, of collapse. Now they had a lot of structural problems in their economy before this was gonna come anyway, but, but the steps taken in relation to my case are what tipped it over. And so of course they blame me, <laughs> they blame President Trump, but they blamed it on the dark terror priest that's me, and they still call it the Brunson crisis in Turkey in the media. It's called the Brunson crisis, Brunson crisis. So this was this was what led eventually to my release, uh, was the damage caused to their economy. But even after that damage, it still took them another two months before they released me. So I, I was on trial on the fourth trial session, which this was spread out over six seven months, uh, the the four uh, sessions. They moved very quickly to convict me and to sentence me. And I thought, oh, no, I'll, after all this pressure, all of this prayer, I'm just going back to prison. They're, they're not letting me go. And then suddenly they, you know, they said, we're releasing you while you appeal the sentence and you can leave the country. So please leave right now. <laughs> and it caught the U.S. government by surprise. You know, I know that they expected at some point that there would be movement but they were not ready for my release the way it happened. And uh, they very quickly scrambled to get a, an Air Force plane 
from Germany to fly to Turkey to pick us up and get us out of there as quickly as possible. So, so what I think is that the pressure was there, but it was God who determined the timing of it so that even our government who had put on this pressure did not know what was coming. We've talked a lot about prayer on this podcast and, you know, it's not lost to me that tomorrow when you give the commencement address, there will be some uh, graduating students in the audience who started their time at Beeson at the end of your imprisonment and were involved in praying for your release. And so to see you before them will be such an answer to prayer for them. And I know that you have um, talked about this worldwide prayer movement that resulted as a um, as a result of your imprisonment. Um, can you tell us um, about Wave Starters, um, the ministry that you and your wife are involved in, and kind of catch us up to speed um, on what ministry has looked like or life has looked like um, since your release? Yeah, so Wave Starters, the name comes from in 2007, I began to pray what I think of as the Wave Starter prayer. Father God, draw me so close to your heart that you'll be able to trust me with the authority to start waves. I wanted to see waves of the kingdom start in Turkey, which has no waves of the kingdom. It's a very dark place, uh, spiritually, uh, largest unevangelized country. And I'm saying, God, we need to see something bigger happen here. We need to see waves of the kingdom uh, spread through this land. How do I? How do we get there? We need authority from you to start these waves. Who do you give authority to, to the ones you trust? How can we gain your trust? We run after your heart. So I was focused on getting authority for waves, and God was focusing me on the first part of that prayer, which is, uh, Father, God, draw me so close to your heart. And this began a pursuit of uh, intimacy uh, with God. And th- that pursuit, uh, as we as we made that our priority, running after him, drawing close to him, uh, that positioned us for him to give us assignments and uh, eventually what I think of as the prison assignment uh, because he uh, running after him was shaping our hearts and prepared. That's why I've said that God prepared me for this. It didn't feel like he prepared me for it, but I see that uh, the years of drawing me into that pursuit of his heart prepared me to suffer for him. And in a way uh, I ended up in prison because of that prayer. So uh, we still have the same desire now to see waves start. We did see a wave start. <laughs> you know, I didn't start it. I just uh, sat in prison, tried to hang on, and God started the wave. But it was a pretty amazing wave. Uh, I say I wrote a wave of prayer out of Turkey, but a tsunami of prayer crashed into Turkey, and is, uh, God's going to use it to transform uh, that country. Uh, so now our, our goal in wave starters is to see waves start in the old Ottoman Empire. So Turkey was the head of the Ottoman Empire, the head of the Muslim world. They uh, they ruled, uh, they conquered many nations in the name of Islam. They were the sword of Islam, uh, and they suffocated Christianity everywhere they went. So they t- they were over the North Africa, uh, the Middle East, and the Balkans. And I believe that this wave of prayer is going to lead to harvest in Turkey, but also uh, to a change in the spiritual atmosphere and the entire area that Turkey ruled in the name of Islam, and uh, that that we're going to see a powerful move of God there. So for years we were saying, how can we 
prepare for a harvest in Turkey. Now we're saying, how can we prepare for a harvest in the area that Turkey ruled in the name of Islam? So we're focused on the Muslim world. And the second focus area we have is, I think one of the things God was doing uh, with me or in me and during the imprisonment was, was teaching me to persevere and to be faithful in difficult circumstances. And he was preparing me so that I can help to prepare other people who are going to have to uh, make difficult decisions under pressure and uh, face persecution. And I think that's going to be here in the States. And so I, I have a, an urgency for, for this country. Not that I want to focus my ministry here. I, I really have a missionary calling, but I think there's an urgency to prepare people here to stand under pressure because I think it's coming very quickly. It's accelerating and most people are not ready for it. And that's very, very dangerous because if we're, if we're not prepared, then it's much easier to be knocked out. That's a great segue to our final question for you, Andrew. Especially this last year or so, uh, we've been asking lots of our guests on the podcast for concluding words of encouragement for our listeners uh, who've been much more aware of their suffering in recent months uh, than at other times in their lives, uh, obviously suffering under the COVID epidemic and so much social and political turmoil in, in American society these days. Uh, what encouragement might Andrew Brunson have uh, for U.S. American listeners uh, about how to get encouragement from the Lord uh, and bear up under persecution and suffering? So there are a number of things I could go into. I'll, I'll focus on one. Uh, there are many things I do not understand. And the level of grace that I expected, I did not feel it, sense it, it didn't make as much of a difference in my life as I would have hoped. That that may not sound very encouraging to people, <laughs> but but I made it through, and uh, through very difficult circumstances. Obviously, God's faithfulness was underlying that, but I, I will say together with that, I didn't understand his faithfulness, and I still don't. I can't predict what God is going to do. He's faithful, but I don't know what it's going to look like in my in my specific situation. And so people have told me sometimes, Andrew, your your imprisonment was really about you trusting God. And I say, you know what? That gives me much more credit than I deserve <laughs> because I I had a difficult time getting my mind and my heart around trust, understanding it. And I know it's very important to God. But people would send me messages, Andrew, just trust God. And what they were communicating to me was, everything's going to turn out okay. You're going to be released. People would say to my wife, she was afraid of flying in the past, and they'd say, just trust God. Well, what they're saying is, you have no reason to worry about getting on a flight. Well, how do you know? Where does it say that her plane isn't going to go down? So my point is that it probably won't, but my point is that that often in the way we talk about trust, trust is tied to an outcome. And I know we emphasize trust trust the person, not the outcome, but functionally we really tie trust to an outcome. We're trusting for something to happen, something to change. The truth is that in my situation, I had no guarantees of what was going to happen, uh, especially when it comes to persecution, there are no guarantees. So uh, this is what I, I, I hope will be helpful to your listeners 
is the way that I began to think about trust, not knowing what the outcome will be. And we often don't know. So I, I was under persecution, but many people I talk to have difficulties. I think everyone, we have many challenges and often we have a sense of strength or grace from the Lord. But I think almost every believer goes through a time when they're in crisis where they don't have that sense and they feel the silence of God or abandoned by God. And I felt that for a long time, very intensely. And the way that I ended up thinking about trust is leaning into the leadership of Jesus. The idea that I'd say, I don't know where you're going to take me. I don't know what difficulties I'm going to have to go through. But I believe that you're a good leader. And even though I don't understand you, I don't have to understand you. I just have to lean into you. Uh, Isaiah 50 verse 10 became my, my theme verse. God is speaking to Israel in exile and he says, For the one who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of his God and lean on him. So God could have said, I'm going to send you light. You know, that's what we expect. That's what we want. We're very optimistic as believers often. And eventually he did send them light. But at that time, he didn't say that. He said, when you're in darkness and you're going to be in darkness for a while, they were, lean into me. And so this is what God was teaching me. When, when I don't understand, when I have doubts and questions, when I am weak and broken, I can still lean into him. It's a decision that I make. It's not a feeling. And I made a decision with my will. I choose to love. I choose to be faithful. I choose to put my eyes on you. It's a decision of the will. And at my weakest point, points, because there were many, I, I'm very weak and I can just barely turn my eyes in his direction. It may be just a one degree turning in his direction. But that one degree is all the difference in the world. Because it means that I'm turning toward him rather than away from him. And that positions me so that then he can work in my life. And that one degree, turning my eyes toward him, even that one degree was a difference in my being rebuilt in prison or failing in prison. And so I want to encourage your listeners, uh, lean into Jesus, lean into his leadership. You don't have to understand it. You, you just have to make the decision with the will. I choose to lean into him. I choose to be faithful to him. Amen. You have been listening, dear listeners, to Dr. Andrew Brunson, co-founder of Wave Starters, a nonprofit ministry he began with his wife, Noreen. He shares his story at greater length in a new book entitled God's Hostage, a true story of persecution, imprisonment, and perseverance. Andrew, thanks very much for being with us today and more importantly, tomorrow at commencement. And we say to our listeners, please keep us in prayer. We're praying for you and goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at BeesonDivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.